Hey everybody, Chris Peters here and welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. It is episode 86 of the podcast and it is the 2023 NHL Draft Preview Special Wall-to-Wall Draft Coverage. We're, we've talked about it all year, but today we're really going to kind of hone in on a couple of things. We'll talk a little bit more about the top guys. We'll talk about some of the guys later. We'll also get to your questions. I got over 20 questions from listeners that wanted to hear more about this draft class. And certainly with the draft on June 28th, the first round with everything going, uh, I mean, it feels like we've been talking about this forever, but then you get to this point and everything starts happening really fast. So uh, really excited to kind of Drill down a couple of things. We're also going to spend some time on Matt Faye Mitchkov because I think that that has been a story that's been in the news a ton more lately, which is really important and certainly one of the biggest topics around the draft. We all know about Connor Bedard. We know about the other players. But where Matt Vay Mitchkov goes really is what's going to affect the first round, and it's going to be among the most important things for us to kind of track on draft day. So we'll get into that as well. So we'll talk about forwards, defensemen, goaltenders. We'll talk about all of that stuff so that you get an idea going into next week's draft what to expect. And before we do that, I want to remind you, if you haven't yet, subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice. We're available wherever you find podcasts, so make sure that you are subscribed. You're getting every episode. Also, if you are listening to us on an audio app, make sure that you use that to leave a kind rating and review to help us continue to get the word out about this podcast. This is always the biggest time of year for our show, so the more you can help us out with that, the better, and it definitely lets us continue to keep doing this as we move forward into next season and and certainly want to get some of that support. In addition to downloading the podcast or listening to the podcast, you can also watch us on YouTube and on Flow Hockey via the Flow Sports app or on flowhockey.tv. It is great to interact with all of you. It's been fun to add the video element. It's great to reach more uh, viewers and listeners through YouTube and other other platforms. But if you are a Flow Hockey subscriber, you have Flow Sports on your smart TV, on your Fire Stick, on your Roku, whatever you have, uh, you can also watch every single episode of this podcast there as well as select clips from every single episode. So make sure you are subscribed to the Flow Hockey YouTube page on top of everything else and just interact with this podcast in more and more ways. So we thank you very much. This is now the third draft since I started the podcast, so really excited to get into it. And this is our first official draft since I've been at Flow Sports to do uh, these episodes. So really excited. It's been one year for me at Flow, and uh, it's been a ton of fun. And you people, I almost knocked over my water. It's been a ton of fun uh, to uh, you know continue this conversation uh, that we've had over these last couple of years about the draft, and it's great to get all the interaction that we've had uh, with all these great questions, I think some of the best questions of the year uh, are coming in on this podcast. So you will not want to miss that. That'll be the second half of the show that we do our Q&A. But we're going to start at the top of the draft because I think it's really important to just rehash. And and we've talked about it a ton. We won't spend a ton of time on it. But looking at the very top, obviously, we're going to continue to talk about Connor Bedard. I think the impact that he's going to be able to have in Chicago could be significant. It could be substantial. It's going to be important for him, uh, you know, to get in there right away and probably start things pretty quickly. But as we've said on previous episodes, Chicago now has a, a very different task at hand in terms of how they build their roster in the short term 
as well as the long term. When you have a player like Connor Bedard, you have to insulate that player as best you can in years one, two, three, and really start expecting to be a contender probably by that third to fourth season. And that is the Blackhawks have a lot of work to do to get there. So it's going to take some time. They've got multiple first round picks in this draft. It's going to be important for them to make sure that they're doing the best they can to support Connor Bedard. But we already know who's going number one. The question comes, who's going two, three, four, five? Where does Mitch Kov go? All of that. But what we know is that, you know, Adam Fantilli and Leo Carlson, two guys that I think any team would be happy to have, guys that project as top centers, they're going to continue to be talked about. I think the other thing that is becoming a little more clear, I don't think that teams within the top five to six are going to select Mitchkov. I think the conversation may start around seven with Philadelphia. Certainly a lot of people have projected Washington, not allowing him to slip past them. I think if he was available at nine, the Red Wings would take him. Um, so those are, those are, I don't think he'll get outside of the top 10, but you know, if you're the San Jose Sharks, you have to decide, do we prefer Matvey Mitchkov or do we want to go with a little bit maybe of a safer option in Will Smith, who still brings a ton of dynamic talent, had a tremendous season and, and put up historic numbers at the National Team Development Program this year. So Mike Greer, very early in his tenure as GM as the San Jose Sharks, and there is a huge, this is a huge decision that faces them right now. This is a potential franchise altering pick. And I think if it's a Will Smith, you're getting a very good player that's going to be towards the top of your lineup. If you get Maffey Mitchkov, you have a potential star. And that's, you know, and I, I think Will Smith can be a star as well. It's just, you know, I look at the two players and the Mitchkov factor remains incredibly high. But where he ultimately ends up is is tougher to project. And we'll get into that in our next segment when we talk much more in depth about Maffey Mitchkov. Because I mentioned, he kind of impacts everything else. We've also talked a lot about the Montreal Canadiens. And at number five, they are in a position to really alter the face of the draft. Because if we expect that it goes, you know, Bedard, Fantilli, Carlson, Smith, in whatever order those four might go, then the draft probably begins in the fifth with the fifth overall pick. And, you know, the question is, does Montreal go after Mitchkov? Do they take that risk? Or, as there's been a lot of rumors, and you never know, this time of year, it is smoke city. There are smoke screens everywhere. You never know exactly who's telling the truth or if they're hearing things that are completely wrong. You never know. But a lot of chatter over the last couple of weeks, and especially coming out of the combine, seemed to suggest that if Montreal had their pick, and then there's Mitchkov, there's Reinbacher, there's Leonard, they would probably take one of Reinbacher or Leonard. Now, it's an interesting position that the Canadians are in. You think about their top two forwards right now, and you probably say it's Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield. That's the future of their team. It, you know, it's their current captain in Suzuki. It's uh, a potential 40 to 50 goal scorer in Caulfield, assuming he can stay healthy. And those are players that are undersized relative to the league. And so if you wanted to add another undersized dynamic forward, like a Mitchkov, are you starting to repeat too many things? Now, I think Mitchkov can be an altering player, and maybe you decide if, if you did pick him, maybe you try to make some other moves to beef up in other areas. But I think if you are the Montreal Canadiens, I completely understand the potential avoidance of a Mitchkov in and in, in looking for, hey, we're not going to take, take on that burden, but we are going to go ahead and we're going to say, hey, we believe that David Reinbacher can be a top-pairing defenseman. Not everybody believes that, but if the Montreal Canadiens believe that, that's still a good pick at five. 
there are good forwards there, but there's a lot of guys that are kind of, you know, subs, you know, sub six foot forwards, guys that are, you know, they don't necessarily have that size factor that I think Montreal could potentially bring in. But if they did say grab a Ryan Leonard, and then now you've got a more physical, powerful forward who's still sub six foot, but he plays a heavy game and he allows you to play a, a harder brand of hockey. So that's why I think Montreal still has this opportunity here to potentially move around. Maybe they trade back. There's a lot of options available to them. Cause I'm, I'm looking at a team like Detroit that, you know, it feels like they're getting closer and closer. You know, do they get aggressive on the Mitch Cobb front? Do they try to say, Hey, we've got picks, you know, uh, nine and 17. Can we, can we give you those to move up? I mean, I don't think that Montreal would have any interest in moving that far down the draft board, but is there another way to sweeten that pot, to at least make them consider it. Um, and I think other teams, and we'll have a question about this later, I think other teams might not really be willing to entertain the idea of trading up and then selecting Mitchkov, where you've now increased the risk factor because you've also spent assets to get that pick in addition to just you know picking a player that you won't see for a couple of years. But I think that Montreal is more and more likely to select in the safer realm in 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 guys that they feel can be core pieces because you can at, at five in this draft, whether you draft Mitchkov or not, you can grab a foundational piece to your team. It's not a franchise cornerstone. It's not a it's not a guy that's going to be the the central to your your building plan, but it's a guy that will allow you to to lay further groundwork for the future of your franchise. So that's why I think Reinbacher and Leonard very well could be you know the what it's between. Then you've got the Arizona Coyotes at six and that chain, you know, they have a decision to make. They've got to get better on defense. You know, I've kind of projected Reinbacher for them. If he's available, he might not be there. And if he's not there, you know, it's a, I think it's a Leonard, it's a Dvorsky. Those are the types of players that you're kind of looking at. So that, you know, that's what we'll have to wait and see. I don't think Zach Benson, who, you know, is in my top 10, I don't see him going in the top 10 in this draft. I don't even know, you know, I, I've, I've, we've talked about a lot, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit as well, about the size situation. We've talked about it in previous podcasts, but as I've talked to more and more scouts over the last week, it's really started to crystallize how some of them feel about this draft. And it's not just tied to what happened in the playoffs and being bigger, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So with Arizona, they're in a position where they just need more and more of everything. They're still rebuilding. They got Logan Cooley last year. They got Connor Geeky. They've gotten some good players, but now they need to really make sure that they're making the most of this. They have six and 12 this year. So that's a chance to grab two significant pieces. And that's also a situation where you say, could they potentially be a trade partner with Montreal? If there's a player that they're desperate for, that they want to make sure you know, that it it probably doesn't make sense just to move up that one because I think that there's enough value there. And I think that the Coyotes need both of their draft picks, their first round draft picks. But it's again, we don't know how it's all going to play out because there are so many variables in this. But like, you know, could could you say, hey, we're going to do that with with Columbus? I think Columbus is so desperate for a center. You know, they, I think moving them off of three, it would require six, 12 and maybe something else to to get off of that pick. But that's the kind of stuff that you have to be thinking about in those earlier picks. Because as I talk, I, I had a, a really good conversation with a scout recently about, you know, once you get outside of that top group, once you get out, do you love those players enough to say, you know, let's let's make the pick or 
are there so many teams desperate enough to move up that you can really get a nice windfall to move back in the draft? Maybe it's a first, maybe it's two firsts, maybe it's a first and a couple of seconds, maybe it's a first, a second, a third. You know, there are different options. So I think teams will at least consider that, especially teams that are in a rebuild mode where they say, hey, we love, we, we think there's going to be guys that, that are in our on our list that we like a lot that'll be available a little bit later and we want to compile picks and get as many, as much as we can out of the depth of this draft. That's another possibility. So the, the top of the draft is going to have a lot of movement in it. And so there's going to be a lot of different things that we look at that could potentially alter the entire complexion of the draft. But if there's one thing, and I've been beating around it too much here in the last little bit, and we're going to move on to talk about it. If there's one thing that is going to change the entire complexion of this draft, it is where Matvey Mitchkov goes. Anywhere he goes within that top nine picks is going to be fascinating to see because there's a lot of the risk factor. There's the potential that is available to you, the reward. And then there's the conversation that comes with Mitchkov. So let's start very first. This is more of a recap. If you've been on this podcast, you know how I feel about the player. But for those that are new here, let me just break it down first. The, let's let's look only at the hockey. I've said it before. Matvey Mitchkov is a hockey genius. He has the best offensive hockey sense in this draft class, and it isn't close. And that's saying a lot because Connor Bedard, I would say, has elite hockey sense. I have never seen a player. You know, I, I saw both of those players at the under-18 Worlds. And so it's been two years since I've seen Matvey Mitchkov live, watching plenty on video, but two years since I've seen him in person. And... This is a player that I've never seen anybody that just has a complete understanding of how to exploit a goaltender the way that he does. He finds holes. He finds seams. He doesn't even need to be looking at the net to know where he needs to put the puck. It's just an, an innate sense. It's almost like a superpower. It's crazy to see when you see it live. I've seen him score Michigan goals. I've seen him score between the legs goals. I've seen him score from distance. I've seen him score from in tight. I've seen him score on breakaways, and I have always seen him just confidently beat a goaltender, and it is fascinating to watch. And so if you've ever seen him in the international competitions against his own age group, he's a, he's unstoppable. He is simply unstoppable. I think he is a hockey genius. I really do. I think that there is a there is an element of just this kind of savant nature to the way that he plays. So why did I put him fourth on my list then? It's because I think the risks are – the risks exist as they do. Like I try to inhabit or try to, you know, I try to get into the mind of a, an NHL general manager to make the list as close as I possibly can to what I would think would make sense for an NHL team. And I think that the quality of Fantilli and Carlson is so great that that safety and the self-preservation probably outweighs the risk. So what is ultimately the risk. So Matvey Mitchkov, there's been a lot of talk in the media. There's been a ton of smoke out there. There's been a lot of, you know, you hear, you know, people are kind of poking holes in his personality, in his character, um, in the situation at all. And I think a lot of that is just kind of conjecture and just people throwing stuff out there. I do think that there are people that are unwilling, general managers that are unwilling to take a chance on him because of a number of things. But one thing that I think has come out most recently that I find fascinating that you don't really consider is getting Matt Mitchkov is one thing. We fully expect that he is going to come to the NHL at some point. He is under contract until 25, 26. 
So you wouldn't see him for three years, but he's, I, I don't think that teams are as concerned about the contract because really you're only missing a short period of time. What is concerning is Mitchkov has leverage and leverage. A lot of the Russian players have leverage. The leverage is say you are a team that drafts him and he doesn't want to come to your team specifically. And it's, we haven't really seen that since Eric Lindros said no to the Quebec Nordiques. We haven't seen it, but I'm telling you right now, Matt V. Mitchkov has the capability to call his shot. And if he does that, that's going to turn enough teams off where I think they say, okay, no way. But you also, if you did draft him and he, and, and he says, I'm not coming to your team, you're going to, you know, now you've got an amazing trade asset on top of that. But still, I, I think it, it would be very hard if, if, if you get any, any inkling that he's unwilling to sign with your team or come to your team or that he doesn't want to be there, then everything is out the window. You, you pretty much have to go in a different direction. I don't think you can leave that much to chance, even though he could be a good trade piece. And that's why I think, you know, I, there have been rumors that, that Mitchkov is kind of, you know, dictating who he is and isn't speaking to. That's not exactly the way that I've heard it. I think teams that wanted to talk to him have been able to talk to him in some way, shape or form, either on zoom or, or some other way he is expected to come to the draft and maybe, you know, have some of those final meetings. I know there's been rumors out from Russian media as well, that he really wants to be a Washington capital. Um, and I still think that that's just part of the pre-draft craziness that, that we get involved with. So I don't think that that's necessarily the issue, but any team that does pick him is going to have to do significant due diligence. He's under contract with the richest club in Russia, a team that is closely tied to the political powers in Russia in Ska St. Petersburg. That's probably the biggest concern at this point. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that Matt Mitchkov wants to come to the NHL. He wants to compete against the best in the world, and he wants to prove that he's among the best in the world. So that's that. But then, you know, you talk about teams and they say, okay, well, what happened to Ivan Fedotov, who was signed by the Philadelphia Flyers, detained, put into military service, those kinds of things. That's where there's nerves. And then there's an entirely different part of it. And that is, you know, the conversation about drafting a Russian player. The decision to draft Matt Vemichkov is not in the general manager's hands alone. They're going to have to take that to their owner. The owner is going to have to sign off on it. And if I know owners and I know people that really, you know, the very rich people, risk is not something they're a huge fan of. I mean, sure, there's 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 uh, calculated risks and things like that, but I don't think that they're going to be willing to take that risk. So that does shrink the number of teams that I think would be willing to take Mitchkov in the top 10. And I'd also think that there is a level of self-preservation that you're going to see from general managers that say, why take that risk when we can have a player that we feel is going to alter our franchise in a positive way, whether it's, you know, a Carlson, a Fantilli, a, a Will Smith, a Ryan Leonard, Ryan Bacher, you know, different players that you go down the list. I don't think that there's a single player among those that I just mentioned that is, you know, that much better than Mitchkov. I do think that whoever drafts Mitchkov is getting a potential superstar. I think they're getting somebody that is going to be a long-term star in the game, somebody that's going to score a lot of goals. But you also have to think about, like I mentioned when we talked about Montreal, 
teams just watched one of the biggest teams in the league win the Stanley Cup. Yes, they had a five foot nine player win the Con Smythe and be a significant piece. And you can have a couple of those guys. You probably can't have three or four. So if you look at your Montreal and you say that two of our core guys are sub six foot, then you want to, you know, then you they say, can we add a third guy like that? Probably not. And and I think team dynamics matter. I think it matters in the context of this. And and we we always say just pick the best player available no matter what. Well, that you know, how does that player fit within your team structure? And how do you think they'd fit within the long term is another part of the discussion. So when I say that the Matt Mitchkov situation is incredibly complicated, what I'm actually saying is we've never ever seen a situation like this where we've got the geopolitical issues, we have the long-term contract in the KHL, we have a player of this remarkable talent, but one with enough questions in terms of, you know, whether, whether it be character, personality. I mean, just there hasn't been a lot of access to the player. So there's a lot of unknowns. And with that comes that risk. And that's why I think teams are going to, you know, be a little bit more cautious. But Matvey Michkov is a pretty spectacular player. It's just, do you want to, Go as far as you have to go to get him into the mix. I don't have to think about losing my job if I'm wrong about Matt Vaymichkov. NHL general managers do. But I think if we're talking purely on talent, you can make a very strong case that Mitchkov is no worse than the second best prospect in this draft and that he could be on a, on a level with Connor Bedard. I really do believe that. And that's what you're talking about potentially passing on if you don't take Mitchkov. Not simple, but fascinating. Never seen anything like it before. Cannot wait to see how that plays out. All right. Want to roll through a couple of other things really quickly as well. Um, And we talked a bit about the size, and I want to just reiterate that a little bit more. Guys like Zach Benson, Braden Yeager, Andrew Crystal, Gabe Perot, even Connor Bedard and Mitchkov. You know, teams are going to be scrutinizing, you know, I I think when you look at guys like Benson, there are going to be teams that say, would we want Benson as an undersized wing with limited skating ability despite high compete level and high skill? Or do we want Nate Danielson, who's a good two-way center with with good wheels, you know, can make make plays and, and, and has a little bit more of a projectable NHL game? That's going to be the discussion that happens. And I think that we could see, those smaller players slide further onto the board. And then other guys like Samuel Hanzik, Nate Danielson, um, you know, Callum Ritchie. You know, I think that some of those guys could move up. Colby Barlow could go before those guys as well. He's not a huge player, but he's bigger than those guys. So, you know, those are that is going to be a factor as well. So guys that we really like that are undersized guys, and, and you can even throw Will Smith and Ryan Leonard, who are sub six foot, but only by a little bit. Um, but that is a thing that teams are talking about. And it's not just that they're sub six foot is, can you be physical enough? Can you, can you compete enough? Will you do the things that you need to do against top, top tier talent? That's what teams are still trying to figure out. So size does matter. Hopefully, you know, if you're, but you're, if you're a team and you're comfortable with your team makeup and you like what Zach Benson brings or Gabe Perot or whoever, then you're you're more apt to get those players because I think that with Benson in particular and Perot, you know Perot is giving you elite level hockey sense and skill. Benson's giving you elite level compete and good skill. Like so, you've got 
they've got enough to, to be effective players, to be guys that are outliers. And I do think, and I've talked about this before, that, that the way hockey is going, we are starting to see fewer top-tier big players. But then you get those guys that are the Tage Thompsons of the world, or in this draft, guys like Hanzik, Daniel Boot, uh, you know, Callum Ritchie, guys that have some size some, and then have that offensive ability. Teams feel a lot more comfortable with those players still, so they're going to still make those decisions. So that is going to have a, a major impact. The fact that so many of the top-tier talents of this class are sub-six foot, at least we're, if we're talking strictly on talent alone, that does, you know, that makes a little bit tougher to predict because I think there are teams out there that are definitely concerned about that and certainly had those conversations with scouts and said, hey, here's here's the deal. I mean, if it's close and we're, we're going to take the bigger player, you know, if it's if it if we think that there's uh, an opportunity, we just think the higher probability player is the bigger player. And so that's what you're going to see. Another thing that makes this draft interesting is the the defense and talking about defensemen in this class. David Reinbacher, Tom Vlander, Axel Sandin Pelika, Dmitry Simashev. I think those four players, and this isn't necessarily reflected on my rankings, but this is how I think it's reflected in NHL circles. Those four players are in the top tier of defense. You can maybe make a case that Oliver Bonk, Tanner Molendyke to a lesser extent, you know, Etienne Moran, uh, Lucas Dragasevic, you know, those are players that are in a different tier. But I do think Reinbacher, Vlander, Sandin Pelika, um, and Simashev are the guys that the teams say we think that those players could potentially be top four guys, and that's why you're hearing more about Reinbacher potentially going in the top five. He's got the size, he's got the mobility, he's got the athleticism. I think that the combine went well for him. Um, I think he interviewed well. I think teams are getting more comfortable with him. With Simashev. If it's strictly from the eye test, you feel like this is a guy that absolutely should be a top four defenseman, that he might actually be the best defenseman in the draft, that he has talent. Um, he doesn't have as much offensive potential, I don't think, as some of the other guys, but he has size and skating ability that is that is very easily projectable into the NHL and certainly plays a very mature game. So that's another thing that teams are kind of wrestling with is, you know, with we we talk about the risk with Mitchkov, it's the same situation with Simashev. Um, little, I mean, it's not quite the same because he's in a different club in a different situation. You know, but that's a player that I think teams are going to probably look at in the upper half of the, of the first round. And then Sandin Pelica and Vlander, those guys could go in any order. I think. I think they could go before the other. I think if I were to redo my draft rankings, you know, I might flip-flop them. They're only one spot apart right now. But the more video that I've seen on Vlander and certainly, you know, still other things sticking in my head about his size and his skating ability, um, you know, I think that he has a chance to be a high pick as well. Um, we have a question later about how many defensemen will be picked in the first round. I'll answer that later. But I do think that, you know, this is a year where the defense is is pretty shallow. I don't think that there, you know, there are going to be a lot of guys selected later in the draft that are kind of those higher upside, big um, defensemen that maybe didn't put up great numbers this year just because there's not a ton to pick from. But, you know, we talk about how good this draft class is. Well, it's pretty weak defensively. And it, the other thing that I've heard more in the last week is, you know, teams that are kind of towards the top of the draft, we don't necessarily, you know, they know where they're at in terms of their their 
franchise development, they don't necessarily have to go after the defenseman early in this draft because they're confident that next year the draft group is much deeper. And the early indications are that it is. You'll have guys like Artem Levshunov, who I think if he were in this draft would be the first defenseman off the board and would go early next year. I think he's got a chance to be as, as high as a top three pick um, in the 2024 draft playing out of the Green Bay Gamblers. So teams are at least saying, hey, if we don't get our guy this year, we've got other opportunities next year. Most teams don't want to leave that to chance, but that's also not how they, they build their boards. They don't think about next year. They just try to get the best player available and certainly have some ideas about different needs that they might have that, that might force them to weight their board a little bit differently. But there's a lot of, you know, a lot of quality defensemen that they're going to view for next year. They might not go chase them this year as much. So that could also alter the way the first round goes, alter the number of defensemen taken. But I think I'd, I have a hard time seeing, you know, at least the four that I mentioned not going in the first round. And then guys like Molendyke, Guliaev, Blanc, Moran, Sturback, Lucas Dragasevic, Theo Lindstein, the guys that could go anywhere from late first to very early second or even deeper into the second round. Um, that's, you know, it's not a huge group, a huge core of defensemen that we're talking about there. Lastly, I want to touch before we get on our, to our Q and a, I want to touch on the goaltenders. We talked about it before. I just want to quickly recap that a little bit. And also I, I got a, a question from my pal, Jake, that, uh, that, that I, I wanted to get to, but I think, you know, I had six, I had six players, um, six goalies in my top 100, which is a high number for me. It's usually in the three to four range. It doesn't often happen where I see this many goalies that I view as top 100 prospects this year. We had it. And, and I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to Jake's question now because he, he asked about it and, you know, we'll talk about it. And he kind of rattled off the guys that I had, but Jake asked beyond the six or so goalies who will be taken in the first three rounds, Harabal, Guyon, Yarnison, Augustine, Ratzlaff, Fowler, who else do you like at the position? Well, that's the thing is that there's a there's a number of players. I mean, if I did a top 200, there might have been 10 to 20, go, 10 to 15 goalies in there. Uh, but the guys that I think are in that next tier for me, um, it's Damian Clara, who's an Italian international, six foot six, played in Sweden this year. You know, okay numbers, got a couple of looks at, at higher levels. You know, obviously he doesn't get to play in those big time international competitions as, as an Italian international. So not playing against top tier opponents, but that's, he's, he's got so many tools. You, you figure a team could be taking him as early as the second round. I think there's going to be a huge run on goalies in the second round um, after those guys that I mentioned, and, and, and maybe even Clara breaks it up a little bit, but you know, the next group, I think Carson Musser is an interesting prospect, uh, prospect and project because he was behind Trey Augustine last year. The numbers weren't great, but you could see the tools. And he has size. And he's got some abilities. You know, he's going to probably play in the USHL next year and then go to Colorado College after that. So he's got a bit of a longer tail. So that's a bit of a project. Other guys, Max Lundgren from the Des Moines Buccaneers, uh, Samuel Urban, another USHL goaltender, Alexander Helnemo, who is the number one European ranked goaltender. It's amazing how few European based goalies are among the top tier goalies this year. It's often we'll see them come over. Uh, but you know, we, and, th and they are, you know, Harabal, Guyon, um, uh, those, those are guys that are internationals that came over and were top tier guys. Um, but you know, guys like Helnemo who played in Europe all year, 
maybe didn't get as many uh didn't get as much love as some of these guys that were in North America that played at a pretty high level. So those are other players that I think could be in there. So there's a really robust goaltending class. I mean, you know, you go further and further down the list, guys like Hampton Slokinski from uh World High School. Um, you know, there there are another a number of other players, uh Stephen Peck, who played at, at Avon Old Farms this year. Um, those are players that I think will also have an opportunity to be drafted and uh, probably in the later rounds. But goalies, this is a good year to be looking for goalies. And I think I we could see one to two goalies go in the first round. I wasn't confident in that before. I do think we'll see at least one go in the first round. I think it would be Harabal based on all the chatter that I've heard. And I think it'll be late in that first round. But if not him, then you'll see that run on second round goalies pretty quickly. I think teams are going to try to snap them up fast because there's a number of good talent there and that's that's going to help them kind of move forward. So, keep an eye on the goaltenders. It is going to get interesting fast as soon as that first goalie is off the board. All right, we're going to go to our Q&A, but before we do that, I got to get a little sip of water here to make sure that I can get through this as riding solo, it's not uh it's not all it's cracked up to be, I'll tell you that much. All right. Let's get rolling here with our question and answer. And I, we got so many good questions. Um, and we got some people that came back that I didn't answer questions for before. And that's why I'm going to start with Liam. And I've been having to think about this a lot lately. But Liam asked this, he asked this a few weeks ago uh, and never got an answer. Sorry about that, Liam. So trying again, what is your hottest take or boldest prediction for this draft? Thanks. Great work this season as always. Well, thank you for the nice compliment. Flattery does help get your uh, questions answered. Just a heads up. It will it will happen, and I have to read it if it's on the screen because I'm just Ron Burgundy in a, in a, in a costume at the moment. Um, so here's my hottest take. You know, I my my hottest take is you know I I think that Matt Vaymichkov is is in the same tier as Connor Bedard in terms of talent. Um, I think that there are some physical tools that Connor Bedard has that allow him to be the better player between the two. But I think that the the way that those two think the game, the way that they score, the way that they're able to play with such tremendous offensive consistency um, is a huge credit to the way they think the game. And I think that they're in a tier all their own in that particular way. Um, and, you know, I think that, we viewed Bedard as separate from the rest. Um, but I do think that as I've gone through it and thought about it more and more, I do feel like Mitch Kov is much more in that conversation. And again, why did I put him fourth on my board? If I think that it's simply because I, I see the value of, of Adam Fantilli and Leo Carlson relative to the risk of drafting Matt Bay Mitch Kov. Um, and I think that teams have to be very selective and choosy, and that's why they may not select Mitchkov. But when we look back on this draft class, I do feel like we are we are going to collectively ask ourselves, how the heck did Matt Bay Mitchkov go blank? That's going to be one of the defining questions of this class because I do think that he is an exceptional, exceptional talent. Um, I think that the risk there is real. I think that, that there are people definitely afraid of that. But I think that he is right up there with Connor Bedard on talent. Um, and then I'd say my, I, I'll also give you my, my boldest prediction. And I, 
<laughs> I don't know. My boldest prediction is that, um, you know, basically somebody is going to swing a deal that will get them into the top 10. And it is going to, if, if, if you are going to get into the top 10 of this draft, it is going to have to be a whopper. I don't know who's going to do it, but I think somebody is going to do it. And it is going to be fascinating to see what kind of collection that brings in. You think about what could be potentially available out there, guys like Alex Debrinkit, who did go for a top 10 pick last year. Uh, you look at Connor Hellebuck, how many teams would love the chance to, to add a Vezina Trophy winning goaltender to their mix? Um, I don't know if teams necessarily in the top 10 are going to be going after roster players, but I do think that there is that, that potential exists that there's going to be some trade that is going to shake up the top 10 and that's going to mess everything up, which will be a lot of fun. All right. Our next question comes from Richard and he asks, who has the most impressive skill in the draft example, Oliver Moore's skating. I mean, it seems too obvious to say Connor Bedard's shot, but I do think that he is the best shooter in this draft bar none and one of the best shooters in the world in terms of, you know, his ability to score. I think it's something that gives him an advantage over Matt Bay Mitchkov because while Mitchkov is a highly intelligent goal scorer, he does not have necessarily the release and the velocity that um, that Connor Bedard does. And I think that, you know, I've never seen a player at Bedard's age shoot a puck as effectively. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I put Austin Matthews in that category, even though he was spectacular as well in the goal scoring department. I just think that the way that Connor Bedard shoots a puck is unlike anything I've seen. And that's where I see a, a defining skill, but the one you point out, Oliver Morris skating by far the, you know, the most exceptional skater among forwards and probably the best skater in the draft overall, certainly the most explosive and quickest. Um, and a guy that I think, you know, that could be a separating factor for him to allow him to get higher into that first round. But, you know, I think if we're looking for the clearest separation to me, it's, it's Bedard shot and everything else. Um, and then I would say also, you know, Matthew Mitchkov's hockey sense would probably be in that conversation as well, because, you know, I saw those two guys two years ago at the world under 18s. I'd never, you know, I, I, I saw Connor McDavid at 15, so I couldn't, I couldn't say that, you know, uh, Connor Bedard was the best 15 year old I ever saw at that tournament, but he certainly made a case for himself. And then, you know, seeing Matthew Mitchkov do what he did at 16. And I, I wasn't around for when Alex Ovechkin did something similar. But when I saw Mitchkov have the tournament that he did scoring 12 goals at 16 years old, I was like, I've, I've never seen that. You know, I've never seen that from a player at that tournament. Um, and so you're talking about two guys that are potentially, you know, generational offensive talents in this game in Bedard and Mitchkov. Pretty spectacular place to be. All right. We've got a lot of Mitchkov questions. And I, so I, I wanted to leave a little meat on the bone for these questions. Um, and this one, first one comes from Robert and Robert asks if Mitchkov drops, it's because of the contract Russian factor. If a team who had a deep prospect pool and could wait, then why not make the move? I'm looking at you, Buffalo. <laughs> they can wait. The top six is set for right now and they have several top forward prospects who can help sooner. So I assume this isn't, you know, basically moving up to try and draft him. And I think that the, the thing that I, I mentioned before is. Part of the risk with Mitchkov is, you know, what if he doesn't want to come to your team? And so if you are going to spend assets, even if you're like, I agree with you, the, the Buffalo Sabres are close. They have their core in place. They have the guys that are going to be the top of their lineup. So that matters. But what do you do next? 
And I think for, for them, you know, betting the farm when you could also have the 13th pick and still be a, a, a great in a great position, you know, to draft a, a, a player that's going to be part of your future. Um, I just think it's a little too much. I think it's a little much to do. It would be fascinating. I, it would be bold. And I just mentioned that I thought we could see somebody move into the top 10, but you know, I think how, how high are you willing to move and, and, you know, does, how could you get, what, what would you give up to get to that level? And then also if you're a general manager, how do you justify that much of an asset expenditure on a player like Mitch Cobb, where we've at least got some doubts in terms of it's not about the ability. It's not about, you know, but, but just, you know, is he the right fit for your franchise? And there's a lot of questions left to be answered there. So that's why I think that you don't necessarily make the move um, unless you're supremely confident. Uh, And, and, you know, I think if a team does that, then they were supremely confident. They had all sorts of assurances to do it because otherwise it would be a major risk to put that much invested, uh, much of an investment into that particular pick. All right. Our next question comes from Leo. And Leo asks, I haven't seen this discussed much, but since we know there are teams that are less concerned about the risks with Mitchkov and likely rank him in their top three or so, wouldn't one of those teams trading up be a very likely scenario, especially if he's still there after the top four? I do think that there will be teams that would consider it. I just think that they, while they love Mitchkov and believe him to be a superior talent and a guy that could change your franchise, they still there's not like a level of certainty with that that you would go ahead and make that move. So I think it puts really it does put San Jose in a very unique position because if there are teams that are willing to give up significant assets. And, he's, and, and, you know, that's a team we, we didn't talk about it, but Eric Carlson, you know, could potentially be on the move as well. You know, is there something there that you can kind of make happen to get Mitchkov uh, or to, to trade down and whoever wants Mitchkov can go in there and get him? Maybe it's Washington. You never know. But, you know, I, I think that that it would be hard, like I said, for those teams to just increase the expenditure of that pick by, you know, putting assets out and trying to get him. So, um, but if you are a team that's confident that he is a franchise changing player, if you're saying, Hey, this guy can change it all for us. If you are supremely confident in that and you want to be that bold man, more power to you. I don't know that I could do the same thing, but I think if a general manager did it, it would be one of the most remarkable draft day situations we've ever seen. Uh, and it's already crazy as it is. So a uh, very good question. And I appreciate that one. Um, because, uh, yeah, I think I think that that's going to be uh, the the story of the draft. The Matthew Mitchkov story will be the story of the draft. All right, we got some questions about our defensemen that are going to be going here. And the, the next one comes from Dave. And Dave asks, can Tom Vlander be the first defenseman off the board? Could he be? I mean, he, sure, he certainly could be. Um, I think he has the ability. I think there are a lot of teams that like him a lot. I think he's going to go much higher. I have a hard time seeing him go ahead of Reinbacher because I think you're getting more offensive upside out of Reinbacher. You're also getting a little more size um, and not giving away a ton on the mobility, though I think Tom Belander is among the best skaters among defensemen in this draft. Um, and he's a tremendous defender. Uh, you know, I think if you are, you know, there have been some comparisons. I was talking, I remember talking to Max Boltman and Corey Promen on the Athletic Hockey Show, and we talked about, 
you know, the the Jake Sanderson comparison, I think the Sanderson had a little bit more offensive upside than Belander did. And I know that that was a complaint about Sanderson, but as we've seen in the NHL, he can play. Um, but I, I just think there are teams, I would be very surprised to see Belander go first over Reinbacher. I'd be less surprised to see him be the second defenseman off the board. I think that is a real possibility and possibly, you know, maybe we could even call it a likelihood given the teams that are going to be in that 10 to 15 range that should have a chance at him. All right. Our next question goes to Brian and it's another one about another defenseman. With my untrained eye, Dmitry Simashev looks to have perhaps the highest ceiling of the defensive prospects. What are your thoughts and where is a reasonable draft slot for him? Well, another good question. And I think that there is a reasonable case that you can make that he has the highest upside, that he is the most easily projectable NHL defenseman. Given his size, you know, the difference between him and he's not a right shot. He's a left shot, which I don't think matters um, a ton. You know, teams just are going to see a guy that could slot in their top four. Um, And so, you know, I think that there's a a likelihood even for him to potentially, you know, I I think that there's a good chance that he goes in the top 15. Um, And I think there are teams that are very high in him that are in that range. Um, It also just kind of depends on how the rest of the board shakes out, you know, does V lander go already does um, you know, do, how, what forwards are left on the board. But I do think Simashev is probably going to go somewhere in that 15, you know, anywhere probably like to 12 to maybe 20, which is a big range, but I think he's probably going to be a top 20 pick. Um, assuming that the team that drafts him feels pretty confident about, you know, the Russian factor or whatever else, you know, his contract isn't as onerous as, as Maffei Mitchkovs, you know, you want to get him over here. There's, there's all sorts of that. But I, I do think that, that Dmitry Simashev is going to go quite a, quite a ways. On the eye test, I agree. I think, you know, he's he's got all the tools. You know, I had him lower on my list just because I thought that there were safer potential options. I also have some concerns. That, like, I know that he played well in the in, late in the season offensively, but I, I'm not sure the offensive upside is there to, to make him a, a, a super comfortable, you know, top pairing kind of uh uh, projection, but I think top four is reasonable. And I think he's one of the four defensemen in this class that I feel, you know, have a, have at least a, a good ceiling uh, to reach, to be a, a top four defenseman in the NHL. All right. Next question comes from Patrick. And this is that question about Chris, how many defensemen do you think will be drafted in the first round? Well, I do think that we'll see, you know, those top four guys, uh, you know, Vlander. Reinbacher, Sandin Pelika, Simashev go. I think Tanner Molendike, Lucas Dragasevic, um, you know, uh, Gulaev to a lesser extent. You know, I think those guys have a chance to go. Oliver Bonk, um, Etienne Moren. Um, I think that those are players that could go in the first round. I think it'll end up being seven to eight defensemen going in the first round. Um, I think the chance that a, a goaltender goes could be really shake that up, but I think it'll be seven to eight, which is pretty typical. Um, and so I just think that there are going to be teams that are kind of racing to get those last top defensemen off the list uh, towards the end of the first round. And then maybe in the early second, I think we could see, you know, whoever doesn't end up going in the first will be probably be a very early second round pick guys like Theo Lindstein bonk, you know, bonk probably will go in the first round, but you know, there, there are another number of other players that, you know, we'll kind of fit in there, but a lot of, a lot of uh, talent um, that 
you know, probably goes into the second round with this being more of a, a shallow uh, defensive group. All right. Our next question comes from Luke and Luke asks, I feel like Nate Danielson's rankings have been a little volatile. What does scouts see that give them high hope in his game? And what are they seeing that gives them pause and concern? So I think Nate Danielson is probably one of the more, uh, you know, not necessarily fascinating prospects. He's just, he's an interesting case study because I think that he is kind of that safe, steady, reliable, projectable guy that you say, we could probably fit him right in the middle of our lineup. He can do a lot of different things. He's got versatility. He plays hard off the puck. He has skill. He has good skating ability. He has enough size. He's good at the face-off dot. He checks a lot of the boxes. So you've got a lot there. Um, where I would say that he is separate from some of the others. I think that while skilled, he lacks that dynamic element. He's a player that doesn't necessarily get you out of your seat. You don't have to be that player to be an effective NHLer. I mean, there are times where you, you could have said the same thing about guys like Matty Beneers, who was a number two overall pick, where does he have the, the flash? Does he have the wow factor? Well, he just had everything. And I think that's kind of what Nate Danielson has too. I don't think he's as good as Matty Beneers, but I think he's got a lot of those tools where he can do a lot of different things. But lacking that true dynamic skill set maybe limits his projection as a potential top six center. Maybe you're saying, okay, well, he's he's a middle six guy. Maybe he's a number two center. Um, that's where I think you start to see some of the concern a little bit. But I don't. I, I think he's a, a prospect that has had a lot of fans this year, just because you kind of what you see is what you get. He's reliable. He's dependable. He's a bit a little predictable, and then he's able to produce. He does have enough offense to to make things happen. So. Um, that's a player that I think will go probably in the top 15 comfortably, uh, maybe even in the top 10. Uh, so uh, that's a guy that I think is is going to be real interesting. I know that he he doesn't have that flash and dash, which I think you'll, is why you see him lower on a lot of the public lists, but he's got a lot to him that, that screams NHL. All right. I don't normally do this, but we got three questions in a row from the same questioner, and I wouldn't have done it if I didn't like the questions and want to answer them. Uh, so we're going to go to bad puck takes, uh, and we'll see how bad the name actually is uh, if this is true. Uh, do you have bad puck takes? Well, these are good questions. Why does Grayson Sachin have such a wide variance in draft position? Man. That is a good question because I think he's one of those players that's kind of the opposite of Nate Danielson in that there is a lot of flash in Grayson Sachin's game. There is a lot of skill. There's creativity. There's excitement. There's plays that he can make that few guys in this class can make. He is one of the best puck handlers of this draft class. There's a dynamic element to that puck handling ability. The question is, at his, you know, side, like he competes fine, does everything fine. The skating is okay. Um, you know, but is he enough of all of that? Like, can he be enough of, you know, does, does the skill translate to points? You know, he played on a super team this year in, in with the Seattle Thunderbirds, saw his role diminished a bit, but still managed to produce, still managed to make an impact on the game. I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that one of the things that makes him a little bit harder to project is, you know, is there enough defensive value there? Is there enough play off the puck? Size is only okay. Like, you know, what, 
if he's can he be more than a, a gifted puck handler playmaker? Um, and I think he can, but I don't think that it's as easy to see in him as it is in some others. So I, I you know, I have him as a second round draft prospect. I think that he's a guy that will go in the second round. Um, I think he has high upside because of the hand skills, but I do also think that you know his he's got high upside. But how big is that ceiling ultimately? Um, you know, I don't think it's a top six ceiling. I don't see him be, and that's the thing is, if he doesn't play in your top six or top nine, does he help you in other ways enough? And that's where I say probably not. Um, I think he's a lot of fun to watch. I think the puck skills are going to give him a chance. I think he's got great one-on-one ability. He creates a lot of time and space. It's just a matter of executing, producing. You know, I think he could have a big year in the WHL next year, but that's a player where you say, all right, there's there's got to be a little bit more there in order for me to feel comfortable about his overall projection. All right, bad puck takes, you're up again. Who is the draft plus one draft year plus one player most likely to be taken highest in the draft? So draft plus one, it, just to make sure everybody's on the same page as terminology, it's often what we use as shorthand to say a player that is was already draft eligible that's back in the draft. Pretty self-explanatory. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know, but just in case you didn't, that's what draft plus one means. Um, and so the guy that I think will be the highest draft plus one is a guy that nobody was on nobody's radar last year. Nobody. I wasn't on my radar. I'll tell you that much. And I didn't even know who he was. And I probably didn't know who he was still until he got to the World Junior Championship. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, who is this guy? And why do we need to know everything about him? And that's Adam Guyon, who played in the North American League this year with the Chippewa Steel. He also played with the Green Bay Gamblers in the USHL, which I believe he'll be going to Green Bay next season uh, to play for the in, uh, a full year in the USHL. And then he's committed to the University of Minnesota Duluth. So Adam Guyon, goalie, was the third or fourth choice to play for Slovakia. He goes to the World Juniors, seizes the moment, and then all of a sudden you start watching his game film from the rest of the year. You start seeing how he played at the North American League. You start seeing what he did. And he's probably one of the most athletic goaltenders. He has the size. And he was a goal away from eliminating Canada at the World Junior Championship. Then Connor Bedard happened. And if you haven't seen that goal, go back and watch it. Connor Bedard, Slovakia, World Juniors. Dynamic goal. Danced everybody on the ice, including Guyon. But Guyon came out of nowhere. And I think that. Because of that, a lot of us have had to play catch-up, but you look at the personality of the player, you look at the way that he played this year, you look at the numbers he put up in the North American League, you, you expect him to have a big year in the USHL next year. You love that he's on the college path because it gives you time to allow him to, to continue to develop. This is his first year in North America. I mean, even the North American League teams didn't know who he was last year. They, you know, Chippewa gets a, a GoPro video of him, and then they, they basically invite him to camp. Comes to camp, blows him away. Now he's on the team. So a lot of draft plus one players were known commodities in their draft year. Guyon wasn't. He doesn't have any of that kind of built in, this kid can't do it. you know. So, so I think that that helps him. And I do think that he'll be a high second round pick. I think a team is going to be very eager to select him and work with him and help him develop more. He needs more time with goalie coaches. He needs more time um, to marinate. But I think Adam Gein is going to be the, the the highest draft plus one player selected. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of guys like that. All right. Bad puck takes take three. 
and we thank you for all of your questions. They were good, and I enjoy answering them, and I will enjoy answering this one. And this one is, who is the biggest boom or bust prospect? Whoo, Boy, is that a loaded one. Well, I need to take a sip before that one because – so you know how I was talking about how Maffei Mitchkov could be the best player in this draft? There's also the chance that things go completely wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the biggest boom bust player is Matt Mitchkov, and that's why you know you you limit you you limit it because yeah you know he's still he's still a five ten average skater one way winger you know like there aren't a ton of guys with that profile that that have long NHL careers, but his hockey sense and offensive capabilities are so much that I'm just like I don't care because he could he does things that people can do that uh, that I haven't seen players his age ever do, and and do it a lot. And, and do it next year. There's also the people that say, well, if he's so good, how come he didn't make Ska's lineup this year? And he had to be loaned out to Sochi. Very valid question. Ska, of course, every year has one of the best teams. They're always in the hunt for the Gagarin Cup. And it's hard for a teenager to gain the trust of a coach and play in that situation. That said, if he is the super talent that we have all said he is, why couldn't he have broken the mold and been that guy for Ska this year? Still. So that's where we're at. Matt Mitchkov to me, is the biggest – if he hits, we're talking potential superstar. If he doesn't, we're talking about one of the greatest just collapses of this colossal talent. And then – but there's already all these other things outside of his control. You know, let's not even forget, like, this is a player that also has gone through a personal loss this year. His father passed away unexpectedly. And kind of mysteriously, you know, there's all sorts of things, all these different changes. And then you've got all this other political, like the kid is a, a political football himself. So there's all that other stuff that that's another reason why we continue to limit that. Think about the risk factor. There's so many things beyond what we already talked about earlier today. So Matt Mitchkov to me, he, he could be one of the greats and maybe one of the best prospects from Russia since Ovechkin. Or he, we, you know, we only get a limited time with him. Things don't go right. He goes back to Russia, and that's it. I hope it's not the case, but that's why we're talking that the two ends of that spectrum could not be further apart. And that's why I say he's the biggest boom bust prospect because the boom could be massive and the bust could be earth shattering. So <laughs> that's what we're talking about here. So it's Mitchkov. All right, got one from Andrew, and Andrew wants to talk about the Flyers. With a few Flyers players being available ahead of the draft, can you explain how transformative it could be for a team that already has two firsts to add more top 50 picks in this particular draft? Are there players closer to 50 that you could see turning into star-level players? Well, Andrew, good question, and, and I appreciate it. And I think you know the the Philadelphia Flyers are going to view this draft as a is a significant moment in their steps forward. And that's why I said, if you're Danny Briere, why not take the biggest swing possible and go after Matt Bamichkov if he's on the board? I don't know if that's going to happen. A lot of the moves that Philly has been making so far uh, suggest that you know they are ready to to rebuild, um, and that is not a, not something that we've seen out of Philly in a long time. In terms of how it could be transformative to their prospect system, they're not a system that's incredibly deep at this moment. They've got Cutter Goche, who's a big time player and will be a you know has has star potential. 
but they also have a lot of needs within their system. They're also going to be moving on from a lot of veteran players. And so, you know, we've heard about the different guys that are kind of in the mix for trade rumors. Scott Lawton is in there. Another couple of that are in there. Um, you know, we'll see what happens with, with some of the other players. And, and if they go Konechny and, you know, Carter Hart to a certain extent. Um, but I, I think that ultimately, you know, they've made some really significant moves. They now have two first round draft picks. Those, those two are going to be the most important. I don't think there are a ton of guys in that 50 range that I would say, Hey, that guy could be a star in this league. I think there are, you know, a number of players that could be impact players that are in that, in that range. If you're in the top 50. But I don't think there's a ton of guys that I would say, well, that guy looks like he's got a star if everything goes right. Um, I, and, that, and in that way, this draft becomes a little bit more normal. But, you know, you look at different teams that have built up their prospect systems. I think about Los Angeles, Carolina to a certain extent. Uh, Vegas built their prospect system to completely sell it off. Um, so, you know, that's another kind of fun thing. That there are many ways to use utilize your prospect system. But every time you draft a player, You've just got another asset. You've got another opportunity because you never know how it's all going to go. You can't really predict the future. It's harder and harder and harder to predict the future for a player the further further down you go the draft board. Um, that's why those players don't go as high. You know, imagine that. But I, I think that this is an opportunity for for Philadelphia if they are able to get more draft picks to land significant pieces for their future to get guys that maybe they won't be stars but they'll be. You know, guys that play are getting NHL regulars at this point into your system is a, is an improvement. Um, you do want to try and get a star. I think at number seven, you do have potential to land a star player. Um, their second first round pick, maybe you know less likely, but still an opportunity. Um, so those are the different things that you kind of got to take into consideration if you're Danny Briere. There's a lot of different options, um, and I think they'll get aggressive. I think they should get aggressive and try to go for a more upside and see if they can bring in some more star potential. Um, but I also think, you know, how much of the team and future identity under Briere, Keith Jones, and John Tortorella, how much of that is impacting who you draft and how you draft? Um, that's going to be a real question that that they're going to have to answer. I can't wait to watch the Flyers. I said it last time on the podcast. I think they're one of the biggest wild cards of this draft and could really do a ton of damage um, in, in both positive and negative ways, you know, positive ways for themselves and, and certainly trying to get more aggressive on the trade market. So uh, I'm fascinated to see what that, what will happen with them. So good question there. All right. Our next one is coming from F and we are, we're getting close to the end here, folks. So F is going to ask who would be your gamble or hidden gem in the later rounds? Let's say four to seven. Thank you. I love your work. Thank you very much for saying that. That was very nice. And you're welcome as well for answering this question. Um, so here's what we got. Uh, you know, in terms of gems, I do have a piece up on flowhockey.tv right now about uh, late round draft picks and hidden gems. Uh, you know, guys, that I think they didn't make it onto my top 100, but they're guys that, you know, I would say, hey, if it's late in the late in the game and the guys off my list are gone, these are the guys that I would want. Um, and I think one of the guys that, that I find most intriguing, but I also see there's always a little bit of risk and uncertainty with, um, is, is high school players. And one of the guys that I really like from this class, based on what I saw of him in high school and in limited USHL action, is Jake Fisher. Plays for the Fargo Force, plays for Creighton-Durham Hall. He's going to be in the USHL, I believe, next season. He's committed to Denver. Um, he kind of burst out on the scene this year. Uh, 
was one of the top players, was a finalist for Mr. Hockey in Minnesota. Jason Chagabe won it. He was in the top 100. Fisher is not. But Fisher was the first name listed on my you know, intriguing late rounders. I think that Fisher is probably going to go in the third to fifth round, somewhere in that range. Um, I think he has a lot of the tools. He's got great athletic toolkit, size, six foot two, you know, athleticism, um, skill, work ethic off the puck, you know, just really committed. And then, you know, he's going to the University of Denver as well, which is a great place for future NHL prospects. I think that he'll thrive in that environment. Um, you know, I think he's kind of on a good path here. When he did get into games for Fargo, he didn't produce a ton, especially in the playoffs and, and you know, didn't get as many, you know, the ice time wasn't there for him to necessarily make an impact. But he found ways to impact the game. I think that his skating allowed him to do things. I think his size allowed him to do things. And he didn't look like, you know, this high school player that just kind of came in and, and couldn't make the transition to junior hockey. He didn't play a ton, but when he did, I thought he was effective. Um, and, and I like what he brings. So that's a player to keep an eye on for for later. He didn't make the top 100. He was probably one of the last cuts on there for me. But I think, you know, if you're a team that gets that player in the fourth round and then you get a chance to watch his development, I think you're going to be very happy. All right, AJ, we got a question from AJ here. And AJ asks, if you're a team like New Jersey with late second and third round picks, which high upside forward prospects could you potentially target in that range? Yeah, it's always tough because if you're later in the draft and you don't have one of these top tier prospects to, to go after, well, that's that's kind of tough. It's not as fun. It's probably not as fun for the fans when you don't get to be in these discussions with the first round draft picks. But, you know, I think there's a lot of guys that are going to kind of be available in the range that we're talking about here. Um, one guy that I'll point out, you know, sometimes you want to go, let's see if we can get a little bigger, get a little more athletic, get a little more skill. You know, what are the different things? You know, let's take a chance on a few guys. Um, Noel Nord is a player that I would would look at in those ranges, uh, probably closer to the third round. And, and you know, he's, he's a guy that has a lot of intriguing tools and a lot of uh, different kind of, you know, he he wasn't always the best this year. You know, I think that he was kind of inconsistent and there were different things that I, you know, I didn't, didn't love about his game this year. Um, but, you know, he is a player that has, you know, skill can get to the net front, you know, and I think those are the kinds of players that you kind of go and chase um, in those later rounds. The guys that have some of those tools, they're bigger, they're more athletic, you know, they're, they're, they've got a certain, you know, kind of, yeah, you know, something something about them screams NHL to you. I think those are the types of players that you want to go after. Um, you know, I think there's also the potential if you're New Jersey. Yes, you've got a Kira Schmid who's probably your goalie of the future, but you know, why not look at some of those other other guys? Um, I look at dif- different defensemen. You know, they've they're starting to build a pretty solid decor. You know, can you get a little bit bigger? Can you get a little bit more athletic? Uh, can you get some guys that'll shut it down a little bit more? Um, you know, so I think that goalies defense you, you've got a lot of options available to you and i think in the case of the devils they're going to have their list they're going to have their guys and they'll just take that next best player you don't there's no need to reinvent the wheel i don't think um as you get into the middle of the draft it's just it it's too hard to do it um so i think that'll be um that'll be something that we'll have to kind of watch all right our next question comes from tate and tate asks what players towards the top of the draft did the players meet with, I'm guessing teams meet teams towards the top of the draft, did players meet with or take out for dinner? Uh, also, do you think Edward Shala will fall past the top 20? Well, since I got sick at the combine, I didn't get a chance to see 
and talk to many people about who they took out to dinner. I know that, you know, I think uh, Carlson and, and uh, Fantilli, you know, went out with the teams that you would think they did the Anaheim and, and, and Columbus and stuff like that and had good meetings with those, those groups. Um, you know, I think uh, even um, Connor Bedard said that, you know, he met with a number of teams. I believe that he, he didn't want to say how many teams he met with, but I think it was six. Um, I heard that from other, other people. Um, so yeah, but that's, that's interesting, but to get, let's get to the Shala question. Cause Shala has been a bit of a faller um, in this year. I think he started the year kind of as a top 15 conversation um, and more and more, you start to hear from teams that are just not sure about him. Um, he's got skill, no question, good size. You know, he can make plays. Didn't see it enough this year. Um, and I get it. You know, I think if you look at his full body of work, you see the upside, you see the potential, but compete was in and out this year. Didn't impact as many games as you would like. Didn't think that he played well enough at the world under 18s. Didn't think he played well enough at the world juniors. Um, and then, you know, he's playing in, in the, in the Czech senior league and it's a very tough for a young player to, you know, he, he pr- produce, but it's tough for a young player to play in that league and get the opportunities. Um, so I do think Shala could potentially fall out of the top 20. Um, I think that, it, you know, at this point, it, there's a good chance that he falls out of the top 20. I think if you're in that 20 to 32 range, you, you think about it long and hard because there, you could potentially be leaving a bit of skill on the board if you don't take it. Um, but that's a player that I think has definitely dropped in his projection. So yeah, that's, that's a guy that we'll have to keep a closer eye on, uh, as we get to draft day. All right. We've got a number of other questions that I'm going to just rip through here and sorry that I can't go as in depth on these, but we are already up against it as we are long on time. And I want to make sure that we get this out to you so that you can enjoy it. Um, so yeah, so let's get to it here. Uh, Joseph asks, is the way people are talking about analytics and eye tests more nuanced than in previous years? It feels like the people that are talking more about gaps in NHLE and the things like size do matter, which is a good thing, in my opinion, since we get a more detailed picture. Yeah, so again, you know, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page, NHLE, NHL equivalencies for points. I got to say, so yes, there's, there's much more nuance. I think every team is using a variety of pictures. I think NHLE is, is used. It's not necessarily the end all be all. It is a portion of it. You know, they're looking at a lot of those The NHLE kind of takes into, uh, you know, historical precedents and different things like that. You know, there are a lot of models out there that you can find that, that kind of create these pictures of players. But what you'll find is if you do all of the work on a model, and you only pick the players based on that model, and you look at some of the players that the model loves relative to what the scouting community loves, if you kind of just take the best of both worlds, you're going to have a pretty decent draft. If you take one, all of one, or all of the other, you might have a terrible draft. Um, And I think that's why a lot of teams need the context of seeing players, not just on video, but live. And... You know, one of the players at the combine that we had, we heard from, uh, this was shared with me, was that, you know, when they they were asked to review video, and a lot of teams will do that, say, hey, what were you thinking here? What's this? And he's like, well, I can't see the rest of the. This one player apparently said, I can't see the rest of the ice surface. I couldn't tell you what I was thinking because I can't see how that play generated. Um, and that's also in scouting too. Like the proliferation of video is is there, but teams still want to get guys out. In the into the into the rinks because there's so much 
nuance that is missed. So every team anymore, their analytics groups are involved in the scouting process. They are providing, um, you know, data. And then oftentimes that'll be presented to the scouting director or to the area scout. They will go and review that player. They will say, you know, here's what I saw. And I think more times than not, the context of what the scout saw will be more beneficial to making the final decision than what the numbers said. But that, but that at least the numbers does do a great job of getting guys on the radar saying, wow, let's investigate this further. And if you combine both worlds, that is creating a much better picture. So the data is better than it's ever been. It's still not perfect. And the, I think the scouts are also about as good as they've ever been at evaluating talent. I, I mean, I'm telling you, it's a, speak with a scout anytime you get a chance. And it's a, sometimes it's a masterclass and just absolute, you know, just things that you couldn't even think of and why, why do you, why they think that way. And a lot of it just comes down to experience. And that's why you see so many guys continue to find, find work because it's such a refined skill. And the only way to get better at it is to continue doing it and to learn from the mistakes. I think most of, of, of player evaluation at this point is simply learning from mistakes and trying not to repeat them by, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. So uh, the process has gotten much better and more refined and even though it's gotten better and more refined, mistakes are still made. Projection, you know, development's not a straight line. There's a lot of different things that can happen there. So, yeah, that's that's something. All right. Our next one comes from Ty Smith. And this is not the defenseman Ty Smith, but T-I-E Smith. So kind of like Ty Smith. Uh, but anyway, this is, uh, I like Zemer, Felix Nelson, NDN, Callum Lynn, Matthew Mania, Chernak, Lardis, Stramel, among others, and a group of other second-round targets. How does a team weigh the pros and cons with players in similar in a similar tier as far as who to select? I think it's all a process. You take, you know, you're going to use, in these scouting meetings, you're going to hear from the area scout that's going to have the best book on the player because they've seen them the most. Then you're going to have your crossover scouts review. Um, and and they might have a very different opinion uh, on on each player. There could be a lot of arguments. There can be a lot of different things. And then you go back and forth and you say, I didn't think of it that way. That's a good point. So, you know, th- different things like that. Scouting director gets a say. In some cases, the general manager does get a say, but a lot more often now they're letting those scouting meetings be run by the scouting director, the assistant GM that does scouting, whoever. Um, and and making sure that all of the relevant voices are being heard. You also review the numbers and those. that's how they do it. Um, and, and sometimes it'll just come down, I like this player better than that player. And it's as simple as that. Um, but, or, or you know, we're trying to get bigger. So we're going to focus on the bigger players. We really want more mobile defensemen. Let's get a few guys in that, you know, in the, in a favorable position where we think we'd be able to land one. Um, sometimes there could be tweaks on draft day. It doesn't happen all the time. And it's just like, hey, you know, new piece of information. Um, uh, something different happened. So you just make a change. That's where, you know, there, there's a lot of different pushes and pulls that get to the ultimate list being made. And, you know, we could debate about what teams like. They pretty much know now what they're going to do on draft day. That What they can't know is what everybody else is going to do. And that's what makes the changes. So, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of players in that second round range that are going to get pushed and pulled. Um, and that's how they end up getting to those decisions. 
All right, got a question from Deep Sea Hockey, and we've got another question after that that's related, and we are almost done with this uh, Q&A here. And I thank you all for the questions because it it really does help us get this thing moving and and makes me think about a lot of different things. But Deep Sea Hockey asks, Luca Cagnoni measured in at 5'9 at the Combine. Already facing questions about his size, do you expect that measurement to affect his stock similar to the case with Lane Hudson? How would you compare the two generally? Well, yeah, Luke, Luca Cagnoni, is, he's, he's a really dynamic player. As dynamic as he is, I think Lane Hudson is much more dynamic. Um, and why I think that there's a difference between him and a lot of the other smaller defensemen. Cagnoni will get picked. Um, I think that he is a guy that, that you know, plays the game in, in the modern way. But yes, measuring in at five foot nine does not help your case. There aren't a ton of five foot nine defensemen in the NHL. There are fewer that play on teams that win. Um, and that is the honest truth that, you know, you look at a team like Vegas and every defenseman was six one or taller. Um, you know, you look at teams that have, you know, but then of course you also look at the, the Colorado Avalanche, Kale McCars, five eleven, you know, different things like that. You can you can make all those different arguments, but I think five nine is a is a big difference from five eleven, and in the in the NHL world, it's a it, it might as well be a gulf. Five um, eleven they can overlook five nine it becomes you're off the list for some teams. Quite it's not fair, but that's the way it is. Um, and so he will be off the list for some teams. I think that to be a smaller defenseman to be, get drafted, you have to have special skill. And I think he does. He's got good skill. He's got the ability to make plays, and that gives him a chance. You know, look at a guy a couple of years back, Dominic Fensori, who plays at Boston University. You know, five seven defenseman, but just a tremendously gifted skater, highly skilled. That skating ability allowed him to separate and get into the you know kind of be a draft pick by the Carolina. Um, so, like I said, I think Cannoni will get picked, but there are, you know, there are defensemen that definitely won't be on the list because of their size. And he's one of them. Um, but I think there are enough teams out there that, that won't look at the size and they'll look at what he can do and give him a chance. Um, you know, but again, I, I don't think that, I think Lane Hudson is a, is a, is a unique and special talent. I don't see a huge comparison there beyond the fact that they're both smaller defensemen. Um, I just think that, you know, Hudson is special and we've, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast as such. All right, this is a related question, and this one comes from Kyle. Kyle asks, this is more of a general question than the one about the draft class, but in your opinion, why do you think some small, dynamic defensemen like the Hudson brothers aren't moved forward, aren't moved to forward where it might give them a better chance of being drafted or having a larger impact on the game? You know, it's a good question, and I, I, I've thought that before, too. You know, different defensemen, we've, we've talked about that with guys that are more offensively minded. Um, and you know, why don't they just play forward? The thing is, is what these guys do as offensive defensemen may not be replicable as a forward and the size questions will still be there. What makes them unique is that as a defenseman, they have the puck more, they have more opportunity to impact the game and the way that the game is going right now, you can afford to have a fourth forward as a defenseman. I think that, you know, you look at that, we talk about positionless hockey and we're not there yet, but there are teams that are saying, Hey, what if we just had a Rover and 
And that's basically what a guy like Elaine Hudson could be. It's what a guy, a smaller defenseman can be. Um, maybe there were opportunities to move them to defense, but I think in most cases, those guys just get in the, they, they play defense and then that's where they're at. Um, I don't necessarily think that Lane Hudson's draft stock would have dramatically improved if he was a forward. His numbers probably would have been better, but maybe that's it. Um, and I think it just comes down to preference. And those guys, they get they get into that position. That's what they are. That's what they want to be. And if you look at what Lane Hudson has been able to accomplish, he still managed to get drafted. Yes, albeit later than you know maybe he should have, but he still has an opportunity to impact the game. In, in a significant way and he gets the puck a lot. And I think that's a big reason why he is so, um, you know, so good and why his brother Cole Hudson will be a high pick next year, possibly because of the lessons learned from Lane. Um, so we'll see, but that's, it's a good question. I think it's one that comes up a, an awful lot about, well, if he's so good offensively, why doesn't he just play forward? You know, part of the reason that we notice their offense is because of how good they are at doing it as a defenseman, you know, so, so then, you know, they could they just be another guy? Um, yeah, but I, I think that they're special. So that's a good question, though. I appreciate that one, Kyle. All right, our last question comes from Pete, and this is a little more trade-related. Are there any young guys who were drafted in 2019 or 2020 where maybe their careers have stalled but are still young that could be traded during the draft for, for picks or other prospects like Nils Lundquist was last year to the Stars? Is Alexi Lafreniere or Kalen Addison available? Good question, Pete. I don't think either of those players are available. Um, I, I think Kalen Addison did did well uh, with Minnesota. I think he overachieved this year a little bit. Couldn't really play him as much down the stretch, um, which, again, brings up the question about offensively gifted, undersized defensemen. Um, <coughs> excuse me, but... Lafreniere, you know, I, I think that New York is going to continue to work with him. Having Peter Laviolette there, you know, we'll see how that changes the outlook for Alexi Lafreniere. Um, you just don't tend to move on from number one picks this early. Um, you know, maybe it, it could happen. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't doubt that it's at least been discussed at some point. Um, but I think in general, you know, you still try to take the patient approach, you know, Quentin Byfield is still kind of growing into his game with LA. You know, there are other guys that, you know, like Alex Turcott might be one of those guys where it's like, Hey, maybe a change of scenery would help him. Um, you know, he, it, things haven't gone as, as anybody had hoped. He had injuries, illness, all these other stuff that happened that kind of knocked him off track. Maybe going to a new organization gives him a new lease on life. Um, you know, I think that guys like that, you know, have a chance to, to move in other places. Uh, Victor Soderstrom with Arizona, for example, like, but, we're not talking about players that I think would be significantly impactful in terms of moving. Like, you know, Nils Lundqvist got a first round pick in return last year. I don't know how many of those guys like Lafreniere could, but I don't know how many of those guys that were drafted in that range that would, would end up in that mix. But it's a good question because I think there's going to be movement on draft day and some young players very well could get moved, especially when teams are like, Hey, we're building for the future. We need to get guys that are going to be here for a while. You might want to go younger as opposed to trying to stockpile on veterans. Well, we have reached the end of the Q&A. I am tired. Um, you might even be tired to listen to me. If you made it all the way to the end of this, if you stayed with us the whole way, the code word is magic man. Uh, so code word magic man. If you made it all the way, tweet that at me. I will 
I will, I will pro I don't have any prizes to give away. I, I always do this. I used to do this on the old podcast too. I don't have any prizes. Uh, but if you do, uh, you'll have my eternal, uh, great, grateful. I'll be eternally grateful to you. You'll get all the good vibes. I'll maybe even give you a draft tip or something, uh, for free. Uh, you know, just something for the road, but I really, really cannot thank you enough for listening to this podcast all year. This is our last episode before the draft. We will not have an episode next week because the draft is on Wednesday and then Thursday. And then I will have a mountain of content to be delivering to you on flowhockey.tv. Right now, we have our NHL draft hub attached to the top of flowhockey.tv. It is pinned to the top. Just click on that. That gets your rankings, your features, your scouting reports, your mock drafts, everything. So much more coming. We've got a two-round mock draft coming at the end of this week. We've got more player profiles and video scouting reports. So make sure you are subscribed to our YouTube page at Flow Hockey. Subscribe to all of our social media at Flow Hockey, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Get on that now so that you do not miss any exclusive content. And then always, always read us on flowhockey.tv. And make sure that if you haven't yet, download this podcast, share this podcast, rate and review this podcast as we hope to uh, continue to deliver great content. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll recap everything. We'll talk more about the draft. We'll look ahead to the future in 2024 because the prospect world never sleeps. No breaks. Just go straight through the year. We've got World Junior Camp in like five weeks. Let's go. Lots to happen. Lots going on. But thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone that asked questions. Thank you for listening. Huge thanks to Amanda Geyer for producing today's extra long episode. And thanks to all of you. Remember, Magic Man is the 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 secret word. Send that to me on Twitter at Chris M. Peters. Read all of our stuff at Flow Hockey. So much more to come. But boy, 2023 NHL Draft, June 28th in Nashville. I will be down there. Cannot wait. Stay tuned for all of our coverage. It's going to be a blast. But thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. My name is Chris Peters. We'll catch you next time.